This podcast is for the strange and unusual. Welcome to Crackpot Cocktail Hour. Previously on Crackpot Cocktail Hour. Paramount Pictures presents Mia Farrow in a William Castle production, Rosemary's Baby. Co-starring John Cassavetes, Ruth Gordon, Sidney Blackmer, Morris Evans, and Ralph Bellamy. Written for the screen and directed by Roman Polanski. From the best-selling novel by Ira Levin. Suggested for mature audiences. In a scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird religious rite, five persons, including actress Sharon Tate, were found dead at the home of Miss Tate and her husband, screen director Roman Polyansky. Miss Tate, who starred in Valley of the Dolls, was eight months pregnant and was found in a bikini-type nightgown with a rope around her neck attached to the body of a man. The one hope. The only hope. The exorcist. Was it an accident? Was it murder? Was it a coincidence? Or was it an omen? Look at me, Damien. It's all for you. Good evening. David Berkowitz, 24 years old, a postal worker, walked out of his Yonkers apartment last night, turned the ignition key in his car, and found himself surrounded by police. Well, he said, you got me. Police say those words ended the biggest manhunt in New York City history with the capture of Son of Sam. Police transported David Berkowitz from headquarters to Brooklyn Central Booking. After my sources say, he confessed to being the 44 killer. After he told them he was a killing machine, ordered by a voice speaking through a neighbor's dog to carry out his bloody outrages against young pretty women. Whether satanic serial killer Richard Ramirez acquired any sense of remorse during his quarter century on San Quentin's death row, now we probably never will know. Dead at 53 of liver failure, Ramirez is remembered for his own description of himself at sentencing as a servant of Lucifer. The satanic panic. Every single person can agree that the satanic panic probably officially started on September 8th of 1985. Now, in this event, uh, Ray Bucky, an educator at McMartin Preschool in Manhattan Beach, California, was arrested. His estranged wife, Judy Johnson, reported Ray Bucky sodomized their son at the school using a thermometer. The accusations then increased, including physical abuse, sexual abuse, and bestiality. Whoa, that's a lot of shit. And so was how, where was the report of this coming from? Did he come home and be like, mother, he did this to me? So uh, Ray Bucky was actually questioned by the police and he was released uh, due to lack of evidence. But it sounds like in this event, she was claiming that she saw marks on her son that led her to this and her t- son told her things. So she's claiming, you know, partially eyewitness, partially my son told me. Partially, I just followed the evidence. Where's the bestiality claim coming from? Because that wouldn't have been on her son. That would have been an animal or like evidence on her husband of like, what's why are you covered in dog hair? We don't have a dog. I don't have answers for you. All I can tell you is what I learned on Wikipedia. (laughs) (laughs) That's all I ask for. But here's here's the problem. So the police they arrest him based on these claims because you know they're following up on it. Sure, these are horrific claims yeah they are right to do like 
research on this. Yeah, and uh, but after they question him, after they hold him, they release him due to lack of evidence. But still, the local police sent the following letter to parents. September 8th, 1983. Dear parent, this department is conducting a criminal investigation involving child molestation, 288 PC, Ray Bucky, an employee of Virginia McMartin's preschool, was arrested September 7th, 1983, by this department. The following procedure is obviously an unpleasant one, but to protect the rights of your children as well as the rights of the accused, this inquiry is necessary to complete the investigation. Records indicate that your child has been or is currently a student at the preschool. We are asking your assistance in this continuing investigation. Please question your child to see if he or she has been a witness to any crime or if he or she has been a victim. Our investigation indicates that possible criminal acts include oral sex, fondling of genitals, buttock or chest area, and sodomy, possibly taken under the pretense of taking a child's temperature. Ah. So the idea is that maybe he said, let me take your temperature, and then violated his... This was his own son at the school? This is his uh, son that he's accused of abusing. And And then they're, like, telling the parents to ask their children, about their preschool-aged children, about these very specific graphic sexual things that may have happened to them. There's actually more to the letter, too. Um, and again, I do apologize to our listeners. We did warn you at the top of the episode, but I am going to warn you again. Obviously, I've already said a lot of it, but uh, there is description of sexual, physical, psychological abuse, and uh, obviously the word Satan's being thrown around willy-nilly. So again, I apologize if this offends you, if it's a trigger warning to you. Um, for the sake of our story, I will be continuing reading this letter. The police also sent the letter, also photographs have been taken of children without their clothing. Any information from your child regarding having ever observed Ray Bucky to leave a classroom alone with the child during any nap period, or if they have ever observed Ray Bucky tie up a child, is important. What I'm the fuck sorry. happened to innocent until proven guilty? Jesus Christ. I sort of feel like, and hear me out, if if I was a preschooler and I saw Ray Bucky tie up one of my, like, cohort, I would come home and be like, Mom, today, Ray Bucky tied up poor little Chad. What the hell? And my mom would be on the phone that day like, Ray Bucky tied up. Like, I just feel like... Like, as a preschooler, you'd be like, oh, right, no, I guess that did happen. I do have a long day, and I don't, I'm not going to remember. Like, you've, oh. (laughs) Kids say a lot of shit. Yeah, also kids Kids, say. (laughs) Kids, kids have no filter. Kids have no tact. Well, and, like, I guess alternately, if, if there was, like, a, a, if there is an actual pattern of abuse, then there would include some kind of intimidation. And so, like, if someone did see that, they would almost certainly be intimidated into not talking about it. So, like, this questioning thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, also, I mean, again, you, uh, you've you studied this more than I have. Is Aren't there uh, distinct signs that you can look for in a child that can indicate signs of abuse? Yes. Sometimes, you know, it's harder to spot. Some kids are, like, well-adjusted despite issues. Yeah, so yeah. but uh, it's given not the fail-safe. fact that this is a whole uh, preschool group, I'm just assuming this is going to be the average thing to look at because we do have a, uh, a whole peer group to, ch- to study from. Yeah. So what would be some common signs? Uh, a lot of times a kid will become either, like you'll see a change in behavior if something has, hasn't been going on and starts up. 
uh, abuse-wise. And so if they haven't been abused previously and they are now being abused, then you'll see sometimes the child will become like more withdrawn. Uh, sometimes they'll act out like more uh, aggressively or like spastically for attention. It's usually like kind of keeping your ear to the ground for behavioral changes with them. It is more difficult to spot if it's ongoing and it's the whole time you've known the child. Mm -hmm. So then their behavior might all always have been withdrawn or mm -hmm. acting out. Alternately, you know, some kids cope by overachieving. So it, again, it can be difficult to spot. Um, yeah. So uh, I would, I, I'm hoping it, it's safe to say this, but in a, a group this large, if you notice uh, a number of kids acting outside of their normal means and having sudden personality changes, maybe not severely drastic, but enough that's noticeable. Yeah, if you start to notice like something is up with this group of kids or with these few kids specifically, then that would be something to be like, oh, I don't know, I might just kind of keep my eyes open a little more. I might just like ask them like, hey, how's it going? You know, anything going on at home? Well, also I feel uh, parents talk all the time. Uh, my mom actually, when I was in elementary school, she used to walk around the school with some of the other moms during the day. And uh, they actually earned the nickname uh, the walking and talking moms. <laughs> but uh, parents talk to each other because they want to know, hey, uh, did you think like this assignment was a little bit weird for this kid? Or, oh, I love this teacher or look out for this one next year because she's a real piece of work. Yeah. Parents talk. So I think that if a number of parents were noticing behavioral changes in their kids, they would be communicating with each other. Uh, I will say, I guess, a, a point a little bit contrary to that is a lot of times abusers will target children who are already not functioning optimally. Mm. And so they might have home lives that are, are already disturbed, parents who are unable to be tuned into them in the way that they need, who might not talk to other parents. You know, that's that's actually a good point. Um, one of the things I actually remember from uh, the Keepers documentary, which <sighs> it's so good, so sad, so, so good. good. I will Maybe I'll do an episode about my actual theory. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. We can talk about it again later. <laughs> yeah. Um, but in The Keepers, uh, a lot of the girls who were abused by uh, abused by Father Maskell had gone to confession to talk about a previous abuse in their life, such as the uh, original Jane Doe and Jane Roe. And another woman who talks about it talks about how a family member had abused her, and then she was abused by the priests at the school. And it seems like it's a common thread of well, I didn't know about this until you told me in confession. Nobody else knows about it, so obviously this is something you're ashamed of. It's something that I know someone's taken advantage of you for in the past, so I'm going to do it again. Yeah, so I think that that can be kind of a reason kids are singled out, which is, like, another reason abuse is so horrifying. Yeah, yeah. I'm a, I actually, uh, so I'm going to open up here. I might cut this out because I don't know how much I want the world to know about me. Um, I, uh... Not by uh, a family member, but I did suffer an abuse as a child. And when I was abused, my abuser actually uh, specifically told me, he singled me out uh, after the event, and he stressed me about how we were friends and how friends keep secrets, and I need to understand the importance of a secret and how my parents would be mad at me if, uh, I, if uh, I ever told them. Now, I did eventually tell my parents about my abuse uh, much later in life. Uh, unfortunately, too late in life to actually get any sort of criminal justice for what happened to me. But I did talk to, I have spoken to my parents about it several times since. But I remember speaking to my mom. And I'm a pretty shy person when you first start 
to know me. I mean, the people in this podcast know everything about me, and I say fucking shit and balls all the time. So, I mean, maybe you guys don't get that. (laughs) But uh, I can be very cautious. More with what I share about myself. When it comes to my physical caution, that does not exist. Yeah, you're you're much more emotionally cautious than you are physically. Yeah, when it comes to physicality, I'm like, oh, throw yourself off a building? Okay. But my mom did say that I was even more fearless before this event, and she did notice that I was quieter around this time, that I did seem a little bit more timid and a little bit more unsure of myself. But she at the time thought that maybe it was related to the fact that school was just starting or maybe it was just how I was developing as a person because apparently she'd been a shy kid too. So in this event, I absolutely in no way, shape or form uh, blame my parents for not seeing the signs earlier. I hit it for such a long time. I tried to forget it for such a long time. So I can never, ever, ever blame a friend or family member that does not recognize these signs. Yeah, I think I think that's a really germane story. Um, thank you for sharing that. I wanted to also say, kind of tying that in, like you went through a behavioral change, sounds like, but relatively slight. And you also underwent a more subtle form of intimidation, which is leveraging the relationship, the, uh, well, we're friends, friends keep secrets. Whereas, like, you can't ask that of a child if you're an adult. Like, it's not a fair thing to do power-wise. Yeah, and as a child, you trust adults implicitly. You do, because you depend on them for your survival, so you are forced to. Yeah, yeah, very, very true. Um, If it had just been a person that just abused me and then just walked away and never said anything. I honestly don't know how I would react to that because obviously I haven't been in that situation. It could go a couple ways, but I think the two polar opposite ways that it could happen is either I am, that would keep me from saying something is either I wouldn't say something because I wouldn't know what to think about it, or I wouldn't say something because I would be afraid of what it meant and that I may have done something wrong. Yeah. And as a kid, you also don't want to get in trouble. Sure. I think um, that makes perfect sense. I think one thing that just comes to mind for me, unsolicited advice for parents, uh, is just kind of when you talk to your kids being like, look, no adult ever has the right to ask you to keep a secret. If any adult ever asks you to keep any secret, like mm-hmm. you you can just tell me anything anybody ever tells you. They don't. That's not your job ever. But you just can't take that in tears. Like as a kid, you're just like, well, this person says keep this secret, you know? Yeah. Obviously, Heath and I are not having children, but we have spoken that if we ever did change our mind and we did reproduce, um, that we would sit down and have a very serious discussion with our children about consent, about secrets, about what you can and cannot say to people, what you can and cannot do with people. And I think one of the things that I would stress to my child is exactly what you said. Uh, If anyone tells you to keep a secret, you don't no, you, you can tell me anything, but what I think we would also say is, because I was told that I would get in trouble for it, that it was something bad. I would mm. probably tell my child, it's not bad unless I tell you to your face that it's bad. Yeah, like you don't need to worry about getting in trouble about something. If you have a question or something weird happens to you, like you should not be afraid. Yeah, if someone tells you that you're going to get in trouble for it or that what you did was bad. You can talk to me and I'll be the one to say whether you'll get in trouble for it. Yeah. 
I like that. Um, but yeah, so things that I'd probably speak to my future children about. Um, but also in this letter, I am not done with this fucking letter. Oh my god! So they already said, you know, they, uh, they're allegedly photographs and, you know, to report if Ray Bucky has tied you up. Sure, yeah. Oh, now, now I do remember. Yes, he did tie me up. That was last Thursday. Oh, yeah, now you remember. You know, it was, it was pizza day, so there was a lot going on. So they also in here said, please complete the enclosed information form and return it to the, the department in the enclosed stamped return envelope as soon as possible. So, you know, at least they paid for postage. I mean, <laughs> consider it. Yeah. I'm just going to give you a heart attack that your child may have been abused, but, you know, I'll pay for your postage. You don't have to worry about buying a stamp. <laughs> and these were the days before the forever stamp. So you don't. What if they waited? Oh, man. To mail this in. They need to go and get, like, spend another seven cents. <laughs> you gotta go to the grocery store. Who has seven cents lying around? Motherfuckers. <laughs> we will contact you if circumstances dictate. We ask you to please keep this investigation strictly confidential because the nature of the charges and the highly emotional effect it could have on our community, they say after they send a letter to everyone in the community with the confidential information. <laughs> please don't. What the motherfucking shit. So actually what they're doing, like that's so much worse because then they're like, don't talk to anyone about this. Like they're like also like, like propagating the secret keeping kind of culture around this. Like you just tell us but don't talk to anybody about this. Like, it should, if this is a real thing going on in a community, then it seems like you would need to share information. Yeah. Here, they also say, please do not discuss this investigation with anyone outside your immediate family, <sighs> even though we've just told all your neighbors who also have children. Do not contact or discuss the investigation with Raymond Bucky, any member of the accused defendant's family, or employees connected with the McMartin Preschool. Have a nice day. <laughs> Go fuck yourself. Good God. I mean, if you want to start a fire. And I think, like, we, we're, we're always learning, like, how to approach things, like, sensitively and, like, so as to not traumatize people unnecessarily. And, like, this is just a big fail. This is just, we're going to take, instead of doing the legitimate police investigation and conducting yourselves appropriately it's like you know let's just cast a wide net see how many witnesses we can scrape up at once give them all the information all the leading questions in the world and then maybe we'll get some legitimate information out of it for a legitimate investigation that's usually how i find you get legitimate information this just sounds like shitty police work to me i mean i know i, I grew up in a cop family i grew up around my father was a prosecutor growing up I know there are good cops out there. This just seems fucking lazy. <laughs> yeah, and just, like, really, really, uh, I'm gonna, like, give them the benefit of the doubt and say ignorant at best. This this whole thing, it just disgusts me. I mean, this is letter alone. So soon, believe it or not, an investigation began. It doesn't sound like that was the direction this was heading. Believe it or not. So in 1984, social worker Key McFarlane spoke with a congressional committee. She was then employed by the Children's Institution, or Children's Institute International, and reportedly developed new techniques regarding the interrogation of possibly abused children. And this is one psychological researcher, one psychologist? Yeah, and one thing that really disturbs me about this is it's described as interrogation techniques on abused children. Now tell me, damn it! <laughs> like, what the hell? 
<laughs> even if it's not like even if it's not aggressive, right? Like obviously. Show me on the doll. <laughs> like, but like interrogating them. That that word is very aggressive. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. that's a red flag for me. The questioning, interviewing. Yeah, Th- these are delicate terms. Yes. I mean, even questioning has implication. Interviewing. Speaking with. Yeah. <laughs> like, seriously. Use your talking words with child. Interrogating, though. No, interrogating children. This included the anatomically correct dolls and the use of leading questions. Oh, we you know those are always really useful in getting accurate information out of people, especially children. Yeah, especially in police investigations. Nodding head, now you know that you saw him tie someone up, right? It's like, remember in uh, Making a Murderer when they're like all the leading questions with uh, Brendan Dassey and they're like, but but in the garage, what happened? Something happened with her head. What happened with her head in the garage? It's like the world's worst improv. Yeah. (laughs) They're just like giving a million suggestions to someone who does not want to play the game. Yeah. Lollipop? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, if I say it, then I get a lollipop. And so and she went before Congress in front of congressional committees and suggested these techniques, which included anatomically correct dolls and leading questions. Can you see the problem with all of this? Like, less, l- slightly less with the dolls. The anatomically correct part of it, I do find, like, unnecessary. I feel like even a child can recognize the vague outline, form, and shape of a human person and be able to point on the form of a person. So, yeah, I am upset by all of this. Hey, well, aren't the dolls that are used, like, in most, at least, parodies and videos, uh, like, movies and stuff, aren't they non-anatomically Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. Like, they're person-shaped. They're, like, kind of outlined. Yeah. Because the whole point... You really don't need more than that. The whole point is for, like, the kid to be able to project their reality or their thinking onto it, not to be led by the outside thing to the conclusion we're looking for. Yeah. <laughs> but I have, I have a feeling that's not the first time I'm going to feel that way in this Here, whole thing. Here's a problem with this social worker. She actually did interrogate the children from the McMartin school and found nearly all of the children suffered from sexual abuse. This guy's a real monster, it sounds like. That's, that's horrifying and also had to be systematic. <laughs> this is where it gets ridiculous. So other allegations not brought forth by McFarlane, but reported by the children's staff and parents include orgies, a series of tunnels beneath the school, children being flushed down the toilet. These are all very disturbing allegations. Here's my, the last two are my favorites. Teachers literally flying around the classroom. And then one of the abusers is Chuck Norris. Oh my god. Well, I mean, celebrities. Walker, Texas Ranger. They have unprecedented access. So, like, what we're seeing, I'm, I'm going to say what we're seeing is, like, kids not being able to separate fantasy from reality and kids giving answers to questions that they think are the right answer. Yeah, and actually, um, the more I read into, like, the Chuck Norris things, I'm like, how the fuck does a kid get to Chuck Norris? From watching Walker, Texas, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, they were actually, uh, when they were doing these leading questions and asking these kids, there was either, like, a magazine or an ad or something that was nearby with a picture of Chuck Norris on it, and they said, oh, he's one of the guys. 
I think also like if you're going to be asking leading questions, if you want to even try to make it kind of valid within that construct, then you also ask ridiculous leading questions. Like like they should have then been asking like, oh, okay, did they fly around? Mm-hmm. And then did they change into purple monsters? Mm-hmm. And then did they take you to Mars? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Like, oh, okay, we're obviously not grounded here in reality. How valid is what's coming out of the... Whereas, like, what adult is going to be like, okay, writing down, these teachers are flying around the room, that's what they say, like... I actually, I was uh, was at the park one day uh, when I was in high school, and I just heard two, like, kids, like, just chatting nearby. It was, like, a group of kids, and uh, one of the kids said to the other one, because they were talking about, like, I've seen a rainbow, I've seen this, I've seen that, they're little kids. Sure. And one of the kids said, one time, I saw a dinosaur rainbow. And first of all, I was like, well, that's fucking awesome. <laughs> yeah, I envy that kid. Uh, second of all, I'm like, please describe the dinosaur rainbow. Did it have, like, spines on it? Like a stegosaurus on top of the rainbow? What's going on here? But then I was also thinking, it's like, you know, everyone likes to exaggerate. At some point in time, we've all been guilty of it. We've all made something up to sound cooler or made something sound bigger than it was. Kids just say the weirdest fucking shit. And like brain development wise, like it takes a while to really draw a firm line between fantasy and reality for kids. Yeah. I remember uh, I worked with children more than I should have in my life, but one of the times I was working in an after school program, this is one of my favorite kid stories. Uh, I had a little boy who was like, I don't know, I think he was like, in kindergarten or first grade, so mm-hmm. like six, seven-ish. And he was telling me a serious story about a thing that he saw. And it was a man at a racetrack who got into a car crash and he was on fire and he was running around screaming and he was in pain and he died. And the kid told me this laughing the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> Lucy, I I don't remember you interviewing me as a child. (laughs) Right? And that little girl was you. (laughs) But, like, I'm, like, kind of disturbed listening to, like, because it starts out like he's serious and then he's, like, laughing as he's telling me. But I'm like, oh, God, maybe we have a little sociopath on our hands. (laughs) Like, why is he laughing about it? And then I'm like, okay, was this in a movie or did this happen in real life? And he goes, this happened in real life. And I had I had recently seen the movie Talladega Nights and I knew that it was a scene from Talladega Nights <laughs> because I had seen it. And I was like, are you sure? Are you sure it wasn't like a funny man in a movie that you saw? And he's like, no, it happened. I saw it. it was I was there. It was real. And like, I, he wasn't lying. Like, it wasn't that like little kid thing where like you can tell that they're lying. Like, yeah. he believed he had seen it, but he also... Some part of him, I think, knew that it wasn't real because he was laughing about it and he wasn't like an asshole in general. Yeah, well, he probably, uh, if he saw the movie like with his family, he probably remembers them laughing at it. So it was like, this was like a funny thing. So not only like not being able to separate fantasy from reality, but like the emotional tone being like... Yeah, Very yeah. different. So, I mean, kids, they, they just say weird things. Yeah, which um, isn't to say that if a kid, like, we're definitely not saying, like, if a child reports abuse, just dismiss it because they're crazy. Like, that's clearly not, like, our cer- message certainly here. Certainly investigate. Right, but we're saying if they also throw in some fantastical elements, maybe try to separate those things out and get to the bottom of it. And so, Like, I think of those parents who sent in those forums with, like, also reported teacher was flying. Like, I think of those parents thinking, like, this whole thing is bullshit. <laughs> like, that's why I'm going to report like this. yeah yeah um and I, i'm not sure where the flying teachers came from uh it, it was probably tied up in all this stuff with you know the children being flushed down the toilet and the little kid being like oh yeah that guy was one of the guys and 
Uh, I could just picture a little kid like laughingly being like, and then she flushed me down the toilet. <laughs> I, I kind of feel like maybe like one of her co-workers, like another social worker actually like filled out one of these forms and like put these things in there. Like I know it was chunking or something. It was flying around the classroom. Man, this bitch is going to look crazy in front of the congressional committee. <laughs> and they were like, oh my goodness. Like, There's a lot of satanic activity flying even. I kind of wish I could be there just like, watching all this unfold but I'm also kind of glad that I have the separation of time and I'm not living during this point in time because as you know I wear black clothing all the time <laughs> and I'm pretty sure I would have been burned at the stake but uh and again uh that stuff she actually did not say to the congressional committee those were just things that came up during questioning the official report so you're only going to report on the things it's in the written report, but it wasn't spoken to the committee. Sure, I would only give them the most validating things that prove yeah, that I yeah. was right and legitimate because I wanted to be taken seriously and continue <laughs> to get paid. So, but she did tell the committee that she learned of scatological behavior, also known as the use of fecal matter, which is poo, uh, and ritualistic animal slaughters the children were forced to watch. Virginia McMartin, who was the school founder, which was the McMartin Preschool, was Ray Bucky's mother. So, of the people here, Virginia McMartin, the school founder, Ray Bucky, uh, Ray, oh, I'm sorry, uh, Virginia McMartin was a part of the family. Ray Bucky's mom, Peggy McMartin Bucky, and Ray's sister, Peggy Ann Bucky, and teachers Mary Ann Jackson, Betty Rader, and Babette Spittler were arrested. Though they were originally uh, 115 charges of child abuse, that number actually exploded to 321 counts. 48 children were allegedly involved. Now, I did speak to my uh, father about this case and kind of about satanic panic in general because, like I said, my dad is a prosecutor and I did spend some time as a child around the local police department. And I wanted to know what his pulse was on either this case or just the cases going around the country at the time. And he said he was actually um, surprised at how the trial concluded or that they actually got a trial in general with a jury because he felt that these people were going to be literally executed he thought the public was so against these people there was no way in hell that they were going to be exonerated or get any sort of payment back or any sort of no one would listen to their side of the story because i mean i can see as like if you were a parent like or even just a person in the world like how horrifying this would be if you thought it was true if you thought like a whole preschool was conspiring and systematically ritually abusing your children or children in general and like involving animal torture and like it's i can understand like yes that is very scary Mm -hmm. i kind of feel like the late 60s through the early 90s are kind of like this era of a loss of innocence in America where a lot of demons that we either ignored or didn't really have as good of a scope on or didn't fully understand because it was days before like the BAU we were much more trusting and then we started to then like things like the Charles Manson murders happens then we start learning and speaking more about domestic abuse situations and the rights a woman has and all the various why you shouldn't leave your doors unlocked and the dangers of kidnapping i mean it took uh 
the disappearance of Adam Walsh to get his father, one of the greatest men in history, involved to help start the uh, Foundation for Missing and Exploited Children with the mother of Johnny Gosh. This was still kind of like in that time where I think people were still having like a lot of information, true information thrown at them of like, this is real. This is something that needs to be addressed. This is something that we need to handle better. But in the middle of it was this weird little string of satanic panic where it kind of like shifted into that. You said this was before the BAU. I don't know what that is. So uh, the BAU, which is um, the FBI's uh, Behavioral Analysis Unit. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. They started, I want to say, 60s, 70s. Um, is that Mindhunter? Is that what that's all based on? Uh, Mindhunter is based on the beginning of it, back okay. when it was, it was like the scientific, you know, the scientific department. Um, that's a fictional version of uh, sure. legitimate events. And uh, actually the TV show Criminal Minds follows the BAU um, on various cases and a lot of the early episodes of Criminal Minds are based on actual cases Um, so actually it was really funny when I started watching Criminal Minds because I was like well this is clearly the Atlanta child killer and this is how he did it and Uh, and it's like oh because they were basing it on something real yeah I I think like with most shows that have gone on for more than seven seasons it's kind of like gone its own little crazy way sure um but shows like that are grounded in uh, the behavioral analysis unit. But a lot of things that the behavioral analysis unit learned uh, that we know today in basic criminology, they were unknown if they were known at all starting like in, in the 1960s. And then now today there are things that we see and we're like, well, these are clearly, you know, obvious markers of some sort of behavioral problem or something that needs to be addressed or something concerning. Or like, this is obviously not a way we conduct investigations by saying, now, did you witness ritual animal slaughter? Instead of being like, this child reported this to me. When was making a murder based? <laughs> we should know better. Was, yeah, yeah. We've had enough time that we should have been figuring it out. But I think also like the public's general awareness of psychology, like... Yeah. Pop psychology wasn't, I think, really even, like, a huge thing until the 90s. Like, I know it's always been kind of a thing, but, like, I feel like having psychological information packaged in, like, an easily digestible, like, public-friendly way is relatively recent. Yeah, I don't think, like, our parents weren't, like, diagnosed, like, depression or anxiety or the thing. God knows how I would have survived if I'd been born when my parents were born, given my high anxiety and depression (laughs) and various other weird things going on with my brain. Um, And, you know, hats off to them for dealing with it, but we didn't have an understanding or a tact deal with it like we do today. Yeah, well, and now we have, like, I can Google, like, I've been feeling very low and eating too much for, like, several weeks, (laughs) and then you'll get information about it. Yeah. (laughs) That's fair. But it's also not as stigmatized as it yeah, used to be, too. very true. So there ended up being uh, 321 charges against the family Ooh. involving 48 children. Now, the case did not conclude until 1990. Whoa. So Judy Johnson, remember, she was the original accuser. She was Ray Bucky's ex-wife, the mother of the child. Yeah. She died in 1986 due to alcoholism and had been diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. Okay, so the person who originally brought the claims and claimed to have seen marks on someone that would indicate they had been abused was diagnosed as having a disorder that interferes with one's perception of reality. Oh, don't worry, it gets worse. (sighs) Her mental illness was withheld from the defense for three years. That's right, you heard it here. Three years. 
So just to back up really quick. That seems like really relevant information. Like I was mad when the doctor didn't tell you he had strep throat like for three days. (laughs) (laughs) So remember, this started in 1983. She died in 1986. So that's three years of all this going on before she died. Didn't conclude until 1990. Seven years of investigations and court cases. And for at least four of those years, she's been dead. Oh my gosh. Which, again, if these were real things that were happening, regardless of her being alive, it's something that should be investigated. Yeah. But since she's like the genesis of this whole investigation and... Of course, people with mental illness can say things that are true and they're not Mm -hmm. always out of touch with reality. Schizophrenia is a particularly tricky diagnosis to be able to tease out what is and isn't real. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yes, she was an alcoholic who died of alcoholism, who's paranoid schizophrenic. And yes, the alcoholism as well. And this was withheld from the defense. There were also accusations of the DA's office withholding evidence, lying to the defense and the implementation of false memories. Implantation. Yeah, so the suggestion. Ah, uh, okay. You haven't seen Inception? Um, they knocked all the kids out. Then they knocked themselves out. Then they went into their dreams. And then they said, show me on the doll. So what was three years for us was like an inter- like a lifetime for them. Oh, God. <laughs> that oh, Could you imagine being interrogated? Like, in, in the dream in space, the dream in the sub-dream space. Like, yeah. ugh. Oh, oh, oh. I don't want to imagine. So, you could safely say that between 1984 and 1990 was when the satanic panic was in full swing. Okay. Because that's really when this investigation was big. It was holding headlines. And this whole thing is completely insane. Now, following Dee McFarland's statements regarding the actions of McMurton, the United States doubled the budget for the child protection programs with a large portion going to sex abuse. That's a good thing. I do believe in more money to protect children. Yeah. Funds were also allocated to conferences regarding satanic ritual abuse, which offered prosecutors advice to secure a conviction. This I'm not cool with, because some of the advice included destruction of notes. I shit you not. Destruction of notes? Refusing to tape interviews with children. Destroying and or withholding evidence from the defense team. Ooh. So, like, just, like, flat out, like... Lying. Obstructing the fuck out of justice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I just... Everything. That look right there. <laughs> so, I'll, so, as this is going on, like, this investigation into this specific preschool... Yeah. Are people across the country... Re- how are they relating to it? So, obviously, people are completely appalled. This is all over the news. Um... No, it started in the first accusation in 1983, but slowly but surely, like, more accusations are coming out, more charges are being filed. Uh, these people are spending time in jail waiting for their uh, trials. Uh, obviously, it's huge that a social worker is speaking to a congressional committee and then Congress passing this uh, to give more money uh, towards uh, child abuse for the prevention and then holding these conferences. It's building things up. And like my dad said, uh, he remembered it being in the news and he honestly felt like these people didn't have a shot in hell. Like they were already pretty much guilty. Are, are people across the country starting to report other instances of this or is it still seen as a localized thing at this point? 
Yes and no. Um, according to the FBI at this time, uh, and therapists at the time, satanic ritual abuse was much more widespread than expected. They just kind of like had to weed them out. Um, and actually, I'll go a little bit more uh, in depth on that. So by the late 1980s, therapists could recommend the following to victims of satanic ritual abuse. Christian therapy. That's unbiased. That sounds really unbiased. Exorcism. <sighs> And support groups hosted by, quote, anti-satanic warriors. Lacey, this is the greatest look I've ever seen on your face. (laughs) You're at the point right now. I need to describe this to our listeners. She's hit the point where it's so ridiculous and she's so angry. She's become hysterical. She is just smiling and crying. And her head. I give you permission. I'm going to take a picture. Hold on. Hold on. Oh, Oh, I'm trying to wrap my mind around this because it's not okay. No, everything on your face right there, it, it says everything. <laughs> oh, man. So, like, I do remember I took I took a lot of classes in my undergrad and also uh, in grad school, and, like, a fair amount of them were about exorcism. So, like, that just tracks. Why did I take a drink right when you said that? <laughs> I took it as a challenge, too. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't want to shoot jalapeno out my nose, Lacey. <laughs> just trying to clear out your sinuses for you. Still getting over. This is the second episode where I'm recovering from an illness. Oh my god. Jesus Christ. Maybe we're cursed. <laughs> Maybe we shouldn't be talking about this. I just, yeah, I, I, I... Okay. You have feelings. Keep going. Tell me more about exorcism. I just feel it... In what world? <laughs> in what educational program? In what American Psychological Association, like, recognized treatment is exorcism an option and I'm not going to say it's never an option I'm not going to say that we were taught that no bar none if someone wants or needs to be exercised or feels that deep in their heart you should shut it down Mm -hmm. like I was definitely not taught that I was taught like you have to respect people's culture (laughs) if like this is the way that they the only way they think they can get healing then you need to partner with a qualified religious representative with their permission and work through this together under like supervision (laughs) (laughs) so i'm not saying never but i am saying (laughs) that recovery from abuse often involves talk therapy and medication and forming a support network and less often involves being exercised. It can involve like E-X-E-R-C-I-S-E and like nutrition and sleep, but not so much the exorcisms. Um, I'm going to have to have a second demonic tonic like very soon. This is like, I feel my blood pressure. (laughs) It also gets worse. Great. But before it gets worse... Um, just speaking on exorcism really quick, because, uh, I grew up Catholic. They just teach you about it in preschool when you're Catholic. Um, I'm sorry to mock your culture. (laughs) Well, actually, um, there was a thing I was watching that was talking about how exorcism can be therapeutic to people that are that true of a believer. And that's one of the psychosomatic reasons why they believe that exorcism actually does work at relieving some actions in some people. That's why I'm like, yeah, it's, I I can't fully dismiss it if it's something that you really feel or believe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, At the same time, I'm not as a therapist ever going to like bring it up as an option to someone who hasn't also brought it up themselves. I'm not going to be like, you're Catholic, want to get exercised. (laughs) But uh, for some people, it can be a therapeutic experience. Yes. Um, but also the right to exorcism was actually modernized uh, within the last, I want to say, 50 years. For the right to exorcism, which is pretty much like the how to exercise book. That... It's like R-I-T-E, not R-I-G-H-T. Yes. Okay. 
<laughs> like right to, I have a right to exercise. You have a right to exercise. <laughs> you have a right to vote. You have a right to exercise. My spirit, my choice. The right to exorcism is more or less the rule book on how to exercise someone, what to look for, things like that, and how to weed out the fakers from the non-fakers. And one of the things that the Catholic Church actually does now is they encourage priests to look into uh, any psychological reasons for it, any uh, physical reasons for why they're behaving this way, instead of just taking it as, well, be switching a lot, must not be epilepsy, must be a demon. Right, yeah. So... They are encouraged to do that, but another thing is I believe that they now actually need to have a uh, psychologist and a uh, doctor, like a medical doctor, well, and or a medical doctor, sign off on it and or remain present during the exorcism. Yeah, I think that is understandable given the potential abuse of power in unsupervised situations. Yeah, because I mean, the last thing you want to do as a priest is exercise someone and find out, no, it was this thing that this person just needed treatment for. And now you've made their heart condition much worse. Now you've killed them. Yes. So, anyway, so it gets worse. By the late 1980s, uh, so I told you, you know, therapists could uh, recommend Christian therapy and exorcism, and then support groups hosted by, quote, anti satanic warriors. In 1985, psychiatrist Thomas Radecki, then director of the National Coalition on TV Violence, and Patricia Pooling formed BAD, an anagram, B A D D, for bothered about. What do you think the DD's for? Devil dances. Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) They claimed the RPG was a recruitment tool used by Satanists, which often induced suicide, murder, and or satanic ritual abuse in players. And they also claimed TV, heavy metal music, teachers, and child care centers could also serve as recruitment locations. None of the allegations held up, and it was discovered that the RPG Dungeons and Dragons actually had a much lower suicide rate. So people that played Dungeons and Dragons had a much lower suicide rate. Well, I th- like, I think that makes sense also because if you are socially isolated and then you find friends to play D&D with, then you might be more likely to want to stick around. Yeah, and I mean, as you and I know, D&D is very engaging. Yeah. And you're always excited to be like, okay, well, what's going to happen next? What's around the next corner? Yeah, you're not like, well, I don't know, guess I'll kill myself because I had to fight some, like, goblins in yeah. a room. <laughs> like, I mean, so my, my kind of D&D-related story um, that ties D&D and Satan together is... Uh, Naturally. I went to... I used to be a lot more religious than I am, uh, specifically some of the Christianity fringe I was a little into uh, for a while. And I went to a conference wherein uh, I was actually there under a little bit of duress. I was toward the tail end of my Christianity at this point. But I went to a conference where we had to uh, stand up and as a group, the leader read us a long list of things and we had to say, I repent for this, I repent for that, I repent for whatever, 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 I repent for all these things. And uh, D&D was on there. Uh, I I didn't repent for that one because I had never played D anD D at that point, so it didn't apply. But wait, Lee plays magic. Does he have to repent for playing magic? <laughs> he most certainly does. Uh, um, and so that was on the list. And I remember by the end of it, I was like sarcastically and loudly repenting. And so people are like, in the monotone, I repeat the thing you say. And I'm like, oh yeah, I repent for Star Wars. Oh, motherfucker, I I repent. (laughs) I was like, I repent for yoga. I think I added like a "Mm mm-hmm onto one of those. And my mom like elbowed me, which she wasn't ever super religious either. She was just mostly there to check it out. And she was like, quit it. And I'm like, come on, mom. It's ridiculous. embarrassing me in front of God, Lacey. (laughs) Like, mom, do you repent for yoga? And she's like, I don't repent for yoga, but you need to be quiet right now. (laughs) 
for, for Pilates. <laughs> she's like, it's fine. We can talk about this later. And I'm like, no, come on. I repent for doing downward facing dog. I repent for cat pose. Like, it was just so, um, so above and beyond. It definitely was another nudge out of the whole religious system for me. <laughs> Jesus, Christ. <laughs> Jesus Christ is right. So, then in uh, 1986, another social worker, Carol Darling, told a grand jury the satanic conspiracy reached the government. I, I honestly feel at this point, it's just all these like social workers and therapists and psychiatrists just trying to one-up each other. <laughs> uh, her husband, Brad Darling, often presented conferences regarding the conspiracy. Hmm. It doesn't sound like she has an agenda at all. No, I don't. I don't see any kind of personal tie to this. Now, this is probably the most uh, infamous part of uh, the Satanic Panic because on October 24th of 1988, the Geraldo Show aired Devil Worship, Exposing Satan's Underground. That is my cue for a refill because I cannot talk about this fucking Geraldo thing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just got in here and she had a mustache finger. All right, I need to do one. What's yours look like? I want to do. I want to do. I'm going for like a Gomez, Gomez Adams. Adams. Yeah. Oh, I got it. You did. So you will see our uh, mostly faces and our fingers. <laughs> because for the Horrorlo show, because it's so ridiculous, we are doing the most ridiculous thing ever. I'm going to get some light in here. We this. have uh, finger mustaches. <laughs> These yeah. will be on our Instagram, our gift to you. Our two listeners. Okay. All right. Let's see if we can muster the strength to talk about fucking Geraldo role in this. Swear to God, we're, we're getting close. So the Geraldo show, it infamously aired this episode of the Geraldo show in uh, 1988 on October 24th. Again, it was called uh, Devil Worship Exposing Satan's Underground. By 1988, Geraldo Rivera was already an award-winning journalist. In 1972, Rivera actually won a Peabody Award for his expose on the Willowbrook facility for children, and it was a mental uh, it was a facility for children with mental and physical disabilities. And the film exposed the rampant neglect and abuse of the children. The film inspired John Lennon actually to host a concert at Madison Square Garden called One on One, with all proceeds going to the children of Willowbrook. Wow. Yeah. You can actually learn uh, more about Willowbrook either by watching the documentary, which is the expose that Geraldo Rivero put together. Um, a really interesting take on Willowbrook is the documentary Cropsy, because uh, they discuss Willowbrook in it. I watched that. Yeah. I, forgot, yeah. I had forgotten that that was Willowbrook, but mm -hmm. I remember now seeing the Geraldo um, yeah. bit on there. Also, Cropsy is just it's a fascinating documentary about where does a myth begin and where does reality end and how much is it art... Uh, mimicking reality and how much of it is reality mimicking art. Definitely recommend. Yeah, highly, highly recommend. So, he was also the first journalist to mention AIDS to the American public on May 9th of 1983 and hosted a four-hour event on April 7th, 1986 when Al Capone's vault would be opened. The program actually fell flat because there was nothing found in the vault. It was <laughs> just like hours and hours of all this buildup for nothing. But I do think that he, you're right to give him credit for being the first journalist to really bring up AIDS. Yeah, that is actually a huge thing. I think he was actually not only the first one to mention it, but the first one to actually say AIDS. Wow. Which is freaking huge. Yeah, so uh, real kudos to him for that. I mean, I disagree with him on his politics and the fact that his show more or less became like a precursor to Jerry Springer. <laughs> 
But there are things that he did that I do, you know, have the utmost respect for. In 1987, the Geraldo show was actually launched and it was quickly regarded uh, as trash TV. It was acting, like I said, almost as like a Jerry Springer or Maury precursor. His subject and guests were often very taboo at a, and uh, at a time it really served as sensationalism. So like, you know how now I think like Maury and uh, Jerry Springer are just kind of more of like, who's the daddy? Yeah, it's very much like more personal dramas and less let's exploit something happening in the world. Yeah, but I remember old like Jerry Springer episodes where it would be like the werewolf family that's incestuous that somehow has superpowers. I don't know. It was always something like batshit crazy. Yeah, Jerry Springer, I think, has always been pretty out there. Yeah, yeah. And so this was very much a precursor. And a lot of people actually thought that it may have been uh, uh, staged at any points in time, which also Jerry Springer's been accused of. I, there was a rumor in my high school that there was a guy who had graduated a couple years ago and you could still look up his Jerry Springer tape and he was like an actor paid to be there. Like, oh, wow. For sure. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, hmm, okay. I, I'm curious for the legitimacy of that rumor. I secretly I want it to be real. Same, that's why I say it now. (laughs) (laughs) If you're out there, I hope it's true. (laughs) So, uh, the show was still very young in 1988. It only been on the air for about a year, maybe less. And that's when uh, Devil Worship and Exposing Saint Underground aired. The program is often referenced as the crux of the Satanic Panic era because it kind of encompassed everything. The program tied together the Manson family, David Berkowitz, Richard Ramirez, and the uh, the then ongoing McMartin preschool case in active trial. I feel like you really should have disclosed at the beginning of this that most of your source material comes from Geraldo. (laughs) (laughs) And now you know... (laughs) No, it's Wikipedia. <laughs> uh, actually, my real sources will be listed on the website as we do with everything else. Yes. Uh, a lot of it is newspapers, books, podcasts. So, I mean, there's for me, there's always like at least one Wikipedia in there, but it's not ever just Wikipedia. It can't just be Wikipedia. Yes. <laughs> the program actually fueled the fires of the satanic panic, and Americans were just seeing Satanists in their soup. Like, it was just <laughs> fucking everywhere. <laughs> But then, in 1990, the trial for the McMartin case concluded with Ray Bucky having sat in prison without bail for the five years without earning a single conviction. But despite his exoneration, the damage was done. The McMartin reputation was tarnished, years of lives were lost, and the state of paranoia gently settled over the country. So that's the thing that really surprised my father was the fact that they all got off because he was like, There was so much coverage and people were so up in arms about it. He was convinced they were all going to prison. Sure. And so when they were exonerated, it was really a surprise. Following the trial's conclusion, psychiatrist Roland Summit cried conspiracy, claiming skeptics of the phenomena were a part of it. So if you're saying the whole satanic panic thing is bullshit... You're part of the satanic panic. You're just trying to like spread the word of Satan. Mm, that would be a sneaky way to do mm. it. I'd be like, there's nothing to this. So this part actually really pisses me off. So also in 1990, psychologist D. Corydon Hammond began detailing his satanic conspiracy theory. He claimed recovered memories obtained through hypnotherapy revealed a conspiracy that was of global proportions. The modern conspiracy originated and was masterminded by, wait for it, a Jewish doctor in Nazi Germany. He claimed this doctor now worked for the CIA with the goal of world domination by a satanic cult. Well, now, that just sounds like anti-Semitism. 
<laughs> that just sounds like a lot is wrong with everything going on there. Yeah, I just feel like, oh, God, really? Is, is that a Jewish doctor? Is that it was Nazi Germany? Is that it, were, were the Nazis trying to kill the Jews to get to this one doctor who wanted to take over the world, even though the Nazis tried to take over the world and were absolute evil and slaughtered millions of people? What's going on here? <laughs> also, not to say that you can't recover legitimate memories through hypnosis. I, I think that our brain works in mysterious ways and we have layers of protection around our conscious psyche that we don't fully understand. And we're not always sure what's going to unlock doors inside ourselves. That, that's fair. So, yes, but... But also, no! Depending on... The, t- the way people are questioned about this, depending on the timing of this, maybe you just remembered that you were satanically abused because it's been in the media and that triggered your actual memory. Mm-hmm. Maybe, or maybe you were abused in another way and you are interpreting that now through the lens of satanic abuse because your brain is trying to protect you on some level. Yeah. Or maybe none of those things. Yeah, and actually, uh, prior to uh, this episode, you and I were, were talking, and uh, we were talking about my abuse when I was younger. And like I said earlier, I tried so long to forget what happened to me. And I couldn't because apparently my brain's just like, no, hold on to everything forever in the most vivid and horrific detail. But there were two things that I lost. I lost his face, and I lost his name. And those are the two most important things. And... Looking back now, if I remembered those two things, I don't know what that would have done to me. And maybe that was the only way my brain would protect me because I was like, I just need to forget. I need to forget. And they're like, well, we're going to make sure that you never recognize this person. So, yeah. And if you were... No more memory. If you were really trying to remember in some way and somebody somewhere gave you something to fill in the blank with, Mm -hmm. then it would be understandable that even unconsciously you might adopt some of those details as your own. Yeah. And actually, I have a, with speaking to my parents and working with them a lot and telling them every detail that I can possibly remember, we have lowered it down to uh, three suspects. There are uh, two big problems though. Number one, the statute of limitations is long gone. So I, I couldn't file a court case if I wanted to. Sure. Um, and number two, I am not certain enough on any of them because my biggest fear is I'm going to finger the wrong person because someone's like, well, it's most likely this of the three. Sure. And then I send the wrong man to prison. I end up having the wrong person get convicted of something horrible that happened to me that they didn't do while the actual person who did something horrible to me is still out there free. And then I've ruined this other person's reputation. What a horrible thing to force you into the position of having to weigh and consider. Life is awesome. <laughs> it's better and, now. But uh, but no, you're, you're right. Your, your brain does uh, so many things to protect you. But uh, like you said, a lot of it has to do with like how it's how people are questioned, like yes, how it's approached. Very much. Because uh, I believe that's the biggest controversy when it comes to uh, controversy when it comes to uh, hypnotherapy is uh, the idea that a person doing the questioning can ask so many leading questions that they can suggest so many things that that's what you end up saying. Well, and it's true. We were talking a little bit about. I guess we've been touching a lot on the nature of memory. That's been like the whole theme. But the idea that even someone putting a picture into your mind not through inception but by describing something Mm -hmm. then you picture that thing and it is in your mind and if that thing's been suggested to you enough and you've kind of run the track of picturing it enough then 
it would make sense that at some point you might internalize that. Yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense. That means how things you see every day end up in your dreams. Right, especially if you're in some kind of suggestible state or actively looking for an answer and are hoping to settle on something and someone says, here's the answer to what happened to you. Yeah. D. Corydon Hammond uh, says this whole conspiracy theory he has about this uh, Jewish doctor in Nazi Germany who's working for the CIA with the goal of world domination by a satanic cult. Seems legit. Like you do. (laughs) (laughs) I I feel so angry. I just like... (laughs) So D. Corydon Hammond claimed his patients were the victims of this cult, which worked in uh, clandestine cells peppered across the earth through hypnotherapy. He learned the group utilized mind control, torture, and abuse to create alternate personalities and the creation of sleeper agents activated by code words. They were trained as assassins, drug traffickers, sex workers, and even uh, child sex workers used to create child pornography. MK Ultra Satan Edition? Pretty much. I'm just like, this is like every Cold War conspiracy. Wrapped up. And somehow you're creating like alternate personalities and then there are sleeper cells and there are code words and then there are sex workers and everyone's working together for the devil. I just feel like there are so many like real corrupt abuses of power going on that like we don't have to invent this weird flashy super tied together shit. Like there's actual <laughs> What about the president? <laughs> so uh this cult included powerful members of society who used their wealth to fund the satanic agenda. If there were gaps in memory or a patient could not recall an event, Hammond sought as evidence of the power and effectiveness of the group's methods. To quote Beyonce, y'all haters corny with that Illuminati mess. D. Corydon Hammond was an expert consultant on the McMartin case and still practices today. That's the part that pisses me off. He was a consultant on the McMartin case and he still practices today and is actually considered one of the authorities on hypnotherapy. So that makes me think more about the legitimacy of hypnotherapy. I actually Googled him and found his practice. Where is he practicing? I'm not. I I don't remember. I I want to say it's like Minnesota or something, but he is still practicing. He still has an office. His name is on the office. Mm. And I'm just like, who is going to this guy? And it's like, man, he's really helping me out talking about his Nazis and his sleeper agents and his sex workers and drug traffickers. Oh, man. He's a swell guy. Oh, man. That hurts. That just hurts to hear that you... Hmm. So this is where I think the public really begins its shift. At the end of the Satanic Panic, it's one of the last big events, but also kind of like really shifts us out of it. On May 5th of 1993, Steve Branch, Michael Moore and Christopher Byers went missing in West Memphis. The boys were eight years old. The following afternoon, their bodies were discovered in Robin Hood Hills. The crime shocked the Bible Belt community, particular with rumors of mutilation abound. The men who found the bodies actually wept at the scene. Damien Eccles, Jesse Miss Kelly, and Jason Baldwin were arrested in connection with the murders. The three were known for petty crimes and lived in alternate lifestyle to those in the local community. Eccles, for example, came from an impoverished background. 
Despite his obvious intelligence, he was diagnosed with a mental illness that was undisclosed, with a criminal history of shoplifting and vandalism, as did his friend Jason Baldwin. He was a high school dropout and working as a roofer at the time of his arrest. Though Eccles and Baldwin knew of Miss Kelly, they weren't friends with him. In fact, uh, Miss Kelly was known for his temper and getting into fistfights with other teenagers. He was tried separately from the other two, and his confessions were seen as the linchpin in the prosecution's case. The confession has since been used as a prime example of false confession through coercion, and several acts uh, Ms. Kelly uh, mentioned in his confession were forensically disproven, and his story was just inconsistent. So just because someone says something happened does not mean that it happened that exact way, they say? Well, I mean, the CIA has that guy from Nazi Germany. I mean, that that's a legit thing. I mean, yeah. I mean, probably what he says is I mean, accurate. I mean, I mean, he's a doctor. Yeah, I'm yeah. A doctor. So... But in this case, and I mean, uh, I know a lot of people have seen uh, the Paradise Lost uh, trilogy and uh, the West Memphis 3 documentaries, or uh, the West of Memphis documentary. And so really, Eccles Baldwin and Miss Kelly were just kind of, they were outcasts in the town. Um, Eccles and Baldwin, like they wore like heavy metal t-shirts. I mean, even Eccles today looks pretty punk rock. Like he's... Definitely, like, has, like, the long black hair and everything. And he is a very intelligent guy. And they even talk about how uh, blasé he seems, like, throughout, like, the first trial. And he later on says, like, well, of course I was blasé. I wasn't taking it seriously because it was fucking ridiculous. Yeah, like, because I didn't murder anybody. So (laughs) I was like, this is absurd. I was like, why should I get worked up about this when I obviously didn't do this? But instead, I'm sure it was read as, this is, look at how cold he is, yeah, yeah. So they were they were very different from everyone else. They were really just kind of like wrangled up and there was really nothing to connect them to the crimes. Again, watch the documentaries. I could do a whole episode on the sure. West Memphis Three, but I feel like so many other people have covered it so beautifully. There really is no reason for me to do it here. Still fueled by the rage of the community and on evidence which was shaky at best, all three were found guilty. Damien Eccles was actually sentenced to death while Jesse Ms. Kelly was set to life with prison with two additional 20-year sentences and Jason Baldwin received life in prison. Now, there were questions and doubts regarding the convictions early on in the investigation, and then on June 10th of 1996, HBO released Paradise Lost, the child murders at Robin Hood Hills, and it pokes so many holes in the case. It it really does a beautiful job of kind of showing you how uh, this witch hunt really went after these boys. And this case actually very quickly became a warning regarding judgment, assumption, and prejudice, and the satanic uh, panic itself. On August 19th of 2011, all three men left prison after submitting an Alford plea. It was more or less a middle ground between the accused and the prosecution. Now, the plea in short states that the men can state their innocence, though the prosecution has enough evidence to possibly convict them. So it's kind of a way that says, we can send them to trial, we can try to convict them, but it's kind of like a win for like the prosecution that says, well, we could try them if we wanted to. <laughs> and then the defense being like, yeah, but we totally didn't do it. So it's kind of a, a middle ground. A compromise. Plea. Yeah. Um, who is it? Uh, yeah, I was trying to think of who I had heard. Peterson the in uh, The Staircase. Michael Peterson. Yeah, Michael Peterson in The Staircase. Uh, that's where, he that's where, also took yeah. an Alfred plea. I was like, where had I seen that? 
Yeah, he uh, he recently took uh, an Alfred plea, Man, uh, which the a lot staircase. Of, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> but in his case, a lot of people think that it was his way of really like getting prosecution off his back of being like, well, I, I didn't do this, and you still haven't been able to like. You can't 100% uphold this, but yeah. then you can also try to convict me. It, it's, I can see how it would be a strategic move either way. Yeah, yeah. And so that happened in 2011. Now, remember, in 1986 was when HBO released the Paradise Lost films. And again, like I said, that was kind of when people really like had their big lens on the Satanic Panic. And when really, as a country, after we watched the documentary, everyone kind of started to like take a step back and think, what are we really doing here? Whoa. What, what's going on here? And that's kind of like when we started to sober up. Then on October 29th of 1997, just a year later, the founder of the Church of Satan, Anton LaVey, died of a heart condition. And though he was a very enigmatic, per- uh, enigmatic person, oh my God, why was that so hard? I don't know. You've had like four sips. I don't know. <laughs> Even though he was, he was definitely a very strange person and without, and most of his personal history was surrounded in mystery, LaVey is often referred to as the Black Pope and the founder of modern Satanism. It kind of, it seems kind of fitting that all this kind of like started around the time that he started the church Mm. and then it kind of ended and then he dies. It kind of seemed like a really natural way for this whole thing to kind of round out. Yeah, I can see the symmetry in it. Yeah. Now that we've kind of like, you know, come to the end of Satanic Panic and uh, people kind of understanding like where it started, I do want to take a minute to talk about actual Satanism. A few like big points that people should know. Um, And I did say some of this at the beginning, but I'm going to kind of revamp some of it and then maybe some information I may have missed. So number one, Satanists do not believe in the literal devil. The devil is more or less a metaphorical vessel. Anton LaVey himself was actually an atheist. He did not believe in any gods. Uh, nor did he support any religion dedicated to a deity. He highly discouraged literal devil worshipping. In short, Satanism is a religion against religions. <laughs> it's basically an anti-religion. Yeah, and it, it's from a showman standpoint and from a satirical standpoint, it's just a brilliant move. It's like um, the previous generation's flying spaghetti monster. Yes, exactly. So Satanists believe in nature, science, and reason. They believe in indulging your desires short of harm to another. Satanists believe very strongly in consent and respect to others, as well as respecting the earth as a whole. That sounds pretty evil to me. All of that sounds just wholesale evil and against Christianity. (laughs) Uh, They do not steal. They say do not lie. Do not burden others who do not previously accept your burden. Wow. I mean, (laughs) it's basically like do no harm. (laughs) Take no shit. It's pretty much, don't be a dick. <laughs> yeah, I, I can get behind that. Yeah. Uh, in short, uh, Satanists stand for non-secular reason and respect and often challenge conventional thought when the conventional thought defies reason. Satanists do believe in defending themselves, but no true Satanist seeks revenge or maliciously harms others. So someone comes at you, I mean, defend yourself. You, you need to stab a bitch, stab him. <laughs> But don't go out looking for revenge. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. So, like, also, if someone's coming at you and they're like, I- I'm just going to kill you in the name of Satan. You're like, you, you're no, not. No, you're not. <laughs> yeah, you can no, say that. No, that's not what this is about. And actually, uh, Anton LaVey was interviewed uh, regarding the Manson family uh, not long after the event. And he said, these people are not Satanists. They are deranged. 
But no matter how many they do, they'll never catch up with the Christians. We have centuries of psychopathic killing in the name of God. Yep. The Manson family, it was discovered, was not satanic. What? Go figure. Their self-proclaimed prophet was Charles Manson, who wished to create a literal revolution by triggering a race war. Real stand-up guy, that Charles Manson. (laughs) Ugh. In 1967, two years before the Tate murders, Anton LaVey did cross paths with future Manson family member Susan Denise Atkins, also known as Sadie Ma Glutz, a.k.a. Sexy Sadie. At the time, she was a topless dancer for Witch's Sabbath in a production put on by LaVey. In short, he found her insane. So he puts on this strip show, Witch's Sabbath, she's a topless dancer, she tries to talk to him, he's like, eh! This is too weird for me, the founder of the Church of Satan. He's like, "Mm, no, thank you. (laughs) No, thank you, please. (laughs) I appreciate where you're coming from. Pass. Yeah. On July 25th of 1969, and two weeks before the Tate murders, Atkins assisted in the murder of former family member Gary Hinman. Now, rumors stated that Hinman uh, received a large inheritance, and the Manson family wished to exploit his newfound wealth. I don't know how they intended to do this, because it's like, oh, he has an inheritance. Obviously, it's our inheritance. I don't know if they were trying to get his bank number, or if they just thought he had cash laying around, but either way, they were supposed to rob him and get his wealth. <laughs> when it was discovered the rumors were false, Gary Hinman was savagely murdered. In their wake, family members left messages implicating the Black Panthers for the crime. So this was actually the uh, first crime that they committed in an attempt to start a race war. They were thinking, America's going to be like, Black Panthers are rising up, then race war. Mm -hmm. Also, Black Panthers weren't about going out and causing violence. They were about, like, defending themselves if need be. No! And feeding children was actually their first program. (sighs) Sons of bitches. How dare they give children breakfast? I know. (laughs) The nerve of some people. (laughs) Jesus Christ. So they tried to implicate, you know, the Black Panthers who actually, you know, care about their community and people and have a conscience. So during the Tate murders on August 8th, so uh, this is actually, again, another disclaimer. We're going to describe some graphic violence here. And this, again, is uh, from the point of view of Atkins, also known as Sexy Sadie, who was the only Manson family to ever cross paths with the Church of Satan. So during the Tate murders on August 8th, it was Atkins who actually wrote the word pig on the wall in Sharon Tate's blood. Wow. Yeah, LeVay actually hid his very brief acquaintanceship with her for years because he was really afraid that the Church of Satan would be directly linked to the Manson family, and he completely condemned those actions. And again, everyone rumored that the Manson family was a satanic cult so if they found out that one of them knew Anton LaVey at one point in time even if it was a short time sure yeah that would have given more steam to it so today the period of the satanic panic is now kind of looked upon as a modern mass hysteria and a witch hunt Anton LaVey's daughter Zena is actually now a high priestess in the church of Satan she was the one who was the very first person to be baptized oh, in the yeah. church of Satan the FBI no longer considers occultist crime to be a threat stating occult related crimes usually arise from a small group of individuals working independently rather than a part of a mass organization dictating their actions so yeah, that's a that's a satanic panic. Um, that's a lot of stuff. Nobody's safe from the satanic panic. I don't think I'm safe from the demonic tonic. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, thank you. Did did you say we were gonna give out phone numbers at some point, or is that something? 
now that we've kind of wrapped up a uh, satanic panic again i know that we touched on uh, a lot of very sensitive subjects in this episode um and again we don't want to take away from any abuses anyone has suffered uh or make you feel like you are illegitimized in that truth that you have in you right and we we maintain the possibility and the reality that people abuse other people in the name of all kinds of things god satan whatever they want to conjure to legitimize themselves yeah and i just want to we just really want to make it very like clear to everybody that you know we support you there are places that you can go uh support systems that you can seek out um and i know everybody heals in different ways but we just want to give you guys um some resources if you have been a victim of abuse or if you know someone who's a victim of abuse i think uh the rain network is probably one of the absolute uh best resources uh one of the great things about rain you can actually just like go onto their website which is rain which is spelled r a-I-N-N dot org. And it gives you uh, national resources for sexual assault survivors and their loved ones. There's the National Sexual Assault Hotline that you can call. That is 800-656-HOPE. Also 800-656-HOPE. I know how hard it is to talk about. I know how embarrassing it is. And if the right words are said to me regarding it, it will shut me down in a blink. I've been there. I know what it's like. That being said, it doesn't make you less of a person. You're allowed to hurt as long as you need to hurt. You're allowed to heal in the way that you need to heal. And take the time that you need. Yeah. And just know, and I know that it's very hard for uh, me to believe this sometime. There are people that love you, that do want the best for you. And if you don't believe that, I'm one of those people. And I want the best for you. And... I hope you can find someone that you can talk to, someone that you can speak to. Um, My biggest advice to survivors of sexual violence, uh, aside from we're here for you and we love you, and please seek out help in any way, shape, or form, is I know how hard it is to report it, and it is almost dehumanizing the way that women are questioned about it. My biggest piece of advice is be honest about the event. If you're uncomfortable, let them know go at your own pace. Don't hide anything. Uh, If you got drunk at a party and you were underage and it happened, the cops don't care about that. Yeah. They care about taking care of you now. They're not going to arrest you for that. Your parents aren't going to disown you for that. I won't disown you for that. Um, yeah, that's just my big thing is there, there are people there for you. Um, I think that's a great statement. I'm going to also, uh, just add that if you know someone is being abused or even if you don't know, if you suspect if someone near you that you love or work with or see uh, is kind of changing there, something might, you just get the sense something might be up. You can talk to them about it, or you can even, if they're a child or a vulnerable adult, you can go on to search uh, your county and search child protective services or adult protective services, and you can very easily make a report. Making a report does not mean that there will be a legal case against the person that you're Mm -hmm. reporting. It doesn't mean that you're going to necessarily cause massive problems for anyone. A report just means that someone somewhere is concerned. And if enough of those reports or if strong enough of those reports come in, then the agency will look into it. So don't be afraid to call that you're not going to ruin someone's life over you thinking maybe someone else is being hurt if you call this call an agency and let them know your concern. Yeah. 
And uh, piggybacking on that a little bit, if you are a friend or family member of someone who's suffering in abuse, the best thing you can do is just be present. Um, sometimes abuse victims, if you confront them about it, they'll clam up and they may shut you out and it might end up being counterproductive. Best absolute thing you can do is let them know that you're there for them in any capacity, even if it's just having a cocktail every other week while you record your podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Support takes all forms. Yeah. Uh, or whether it's uh, holding their hand or being that crying shoulder, just being present is the best thing you can do. Anyways, that's what I want to say. That was depressing. <laughs> but I think also hopeful because we're giving people the ability to claim their own lives and not, yeah. you know, not live necessarily in fear. You are not the violence that happened to you. Right. All right. Well, I think that wraps us up on our Holy satanic shit. panic. I'm going to need a good stretch, I think, after that. <laughs> um, so go pour yourself another demonic tonic. I know I'm going to need it. Um, please drink responsibly. You can find us on Facebook, uh, Instagram, Pinterest, and Twitter. On Twitter, we're Crackpot Hour because Crackpot Cocktail Hour is too many characters. We're also on iTunes now. Woo! Holy crap, we're actually published. We're on Podbean and on, I- and on iTunes. Right. Uh, you can also listen to all of our episodes currently at crackpotcocktailhour.com. Uh, just remember, if you're listening to us on Podbean or on iTunes, please rate us. Please review us. It helps us a lot. Any kind of positive feedback that we can get to start getting the word out here that we exist. We're talking about stuff. Yeah, I think as of yesterday, we had a total of uh, 42 downloads. And I was just like, holy shit, 42 people actually listen to this? <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure some of them were me. I know. I'm like, I'm sure I'm at least five. <laughs> yeah. But uh, we would love to hear something. I would like dream board. I, I would love to one day be recognized on the street as one of the hosts of Crackpot Cocktail Hour. It would be wonderful. Also, Absolutely. give us any suggestions you have, too. If there's, like, an issue you want us to cover or an episode idea you've got in mind, we're interested to hear it. I feel like, just tell Alex to stop talking about the weird shit she's gone through. <laughs> I feel like, what are we going to talk about? Why is she a child in every story? <laughs> Why is Lacey the funny one? Why is Alex even there? <laughs> I don't think I'm the funny one. I think you're the funny one. Well, thanks. I'll take it. <laughs> you're, you're very quick. You're very, like, quick on the uptake. You're very clever. Aw, but that was, a, that was a compliment my dad used to give me all the time. That was his main go-to, is you're quick or you're fast. Oh, maybe I just challenged your father for It was a good thing. thing. It was a really positive okay. thing. All right. Well, cheers. Cheers. Oh, that was a really good one. That actually uh, worked. Damn. It's because my glass is empty enough. <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs>